So the story of Esther is a very unique story in the fact that Esther is a story that has no mention of God, no mention of God at all, but you can see how God is working in the background of Esther's life. You can see how God is working through things. And, and what I love about Esther is that it best rep- resembles us, it best represents us. I don't know about you, but I've never really, I've never really heard uh, the voice of God audibly. Um, and I do pray and I believe that God exists, that God sent his son Jesus, and I worship him, do everything I can to live my life for him. Um, but we're just down here living ordinary lives. That's what Esther had. Esther was a, was a Jewish girl, probably in her early 20s, beautiful. She was an orphan, just living her ordinary life. But there's no mention of God in her story, but his fingerprints are all over her life. And that's why I love this story, because I think God is all over our life as well. You may see evidence of God moving, and if you really, really look, he is there. And he is behind the scenes setting up a moment where you can be in a place for such a time as this. And I know this, and I've, heard, and I've learned this about God. When God calls the shots, nobody can stop the action. When God calls the shots, nobody can stop the action. So um, Esther lived in Persia, modern-day Iraq area, and she was exiled there. And King Xerxes was an evil king. He got rid of his queen because she was not really you know, pleasing him. Uh, she would not obey him and all of his male chauvinistic kind of ways. And so he got rid of her. He's like, you know, I, can, I need a new queen. And so what they did, they decided to open up the, the kingdom, the whole empire, for other women to come and have this beauty contest and it whittled it down to about 400 ladies across the empire and they were out to woo the king's heart. They were out to win over the heart of the king with their beauty and their charm. And whichever lady won that got to be queen. And it really sounds just like a Disney princess movie. But really, this Disney princess movie has a really, really dark side to it. You see, in the king's harem, um, there, there, there lives concubines, okay? And all of, these, all of these ladies who don't get, about 399 of them, who don't get the king's heart, they're placed in this harem and they're there as almost like a sex slave. So this beautiful Hebrew woman dreams all her life of raising a Hebrew family. Esther is not a Persian woman. And she wants to marry a nice, good-looking Hebrew man, raise little Hebrew children, teach them the stories of Moses and of Abraham. But now she's forced to be in this beauty contest and something that um, I would only imagine is a far cry from her dreams as a Hebrew young 
woman. Who knows, maybe she, she already had a guy who was a Hebrew man who was kind of wooing her and looking at her and maybe courting her a little bit. But no more of that. And so what did Esther do? What was her response? We learned last week that she acted like a lady. She won over the hearts of not only the king, but she won over the hearts of those who were preparing the ladies. It took about a year for this process to happen in this harem, and she even won over the hearts of those who, who led that harem, who was overseeing that process. And she probably won over even the hearts of the other ladies. Why? Because she was beautiful on the inside first, and that just spilt out over into the outside. She kept her identity a secret. She did not tell people that she was a Jew, and that's a very important. But throughout this whole ordeal, God was working behind the scenes on an amazing plan to save the Jews in Persia. And this sweet little Esther girl, this young woman was, was going to play a major role in this, for she was brought to this situation for such a time as this. Have you ever wondered in, when you watch like a, like a Disney princess movie, and they all end the same way, right? They always end with, they lived happily ever after. Have you ever asked yourself this question? What, what really happened like when the, when the movie ends or the story finished with that phrase, happily ever after, and you close the book and you think, I wonder what the rest of the story is. I really wonder if it was happily ever after. Because usually those happily ever afters, they're, they're stated at the beginning of a relationship. You know? I mean, Suzanne and I, we have a great marriage, but obviously through our, through our marriage, there's, there's going to be natural struggles and, and that's with any marriage. But at the beginning, it's like happily ever after. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm all over this. I love this happily ever after. And I'm like, yeah, I, I can see this. But then as time goes on, it's like, yeah, this is, this is hard. This is hard, you know. There, there, yeah, I, I mean, there are days that, yeah, I'm happy. But then there are days I'm like, I love her, but, you know, I'm not as happy you know, and she's the same way, and in the same way with our kids, you know. Some days it's like happy, and some days, you know, not so happy, and because it depends upon the happenings around us. And that's why when you're in a relationship, it, it goes beyond the surface of all the happenings which affect your happiness. It goes deep into how you love one another through Christ and through God. And so I tell people all the time in their marriage, you know, love each other through the relationship of Christ. But I've often wondered what would some of those princess stories be if we were to really go 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road? Is it really still happy ever after? Is it truly happily ever after? Well, we're going to see in Esther's story that it really wasn't the case. In fact, pretty quickly, we're going to see that there was mutiny, revenge, and wickedness in the story. We're going to pick up here in Esther chapter 2. Uh, verse 21 through 23, and it says this, during the time Mordecai, now Mordecai was her, was Esther's older cousin who raised her. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, 
Um, Big Thena, I mean, he must have been an offensive lineman. Big Thena, all right? Big Thena and Terrace, two of the king's officers, were guarded, who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles, which means they were you know, almost like a crucifixion, but it was on, on one pole. Uh, all this was recorded in the book uh, of the annals in the presence of the king. So Esther's daughter court cousin Mordecai was at the right place at the right time. Uh, he overheard the plot to kill the king. The incident was reported, found to be true, and uh, it was recorded in the minutes uh, they wrote it down. That's very important to remember as we go through our story. But Mordecai, what's really interesting is that Mordecai was not honored for that. They're like, oh, okay, so this, this guy saved, saved the king's life. I mean, no applause, you know, no, no, no uh, gift card for a free ice cream, no nothing, no high five, no attaboy, no banquet. They just wrote it down. Mordecai saved the king's life. Um, and, we're, and that's very important to remember. So, but it seems really, really unfair that he was not honored um, for his actions. So after the happily ever afters, there's some mutiny happening against the king, and there's an evil plot. And can't you, can't you relate to this? Doesn't it seem like whenever things are going really good, that right around the corner, it slaps you in the face. It's like, these other bad things happen. It's like, really? I mean, things are going really good. You, you get a promotion, and then your car breaks down. You know? I mean, or, 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 or you uh, are able to uh, get a new, you know, washing machine. Because you other one, you know, save some money, you got a new washing machine, and guess what? The dryer quits. And it's like, are y'all talking to one another? What's up? Are you, are you scheming against me? And you could probably put um, examples in your own life when things are happening good and new things come into your life and then bad things happen. Well, that's what happens in this happily ever after. And happily ever afters, they, they don't last happily ever after. So evil doesn't stop there at mutiny. It goes on. You see, King Xerxes decided to honor one of his men one of his most trusted men, by uh, making him a higher rank than all the other nobles in his empire. So, I mean, this is a pretty big deal. And, and we see this in, in chapter 3, verse 2. It says, all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. Now, I'm going to stop right there. Haman was a guy who was promoted. And so... Not only is he promoted above all the other nobles, everyone had to bow down to Haman. But look at the last part of that verse too. But Mordecai, Esther's cousin, would not kneel down or pay him honor. Now you may think, oh, well, I know why he didn't bow down to him. Because he didn't get, he didn't get rewarded for saving the king's life. Well, if I didn't get rewarded, if I didn't get a party for saving the king's life, I'm not going to bow down to this guy. No, that's not really the reason why Mordecai did not bow down. You see, Mordecai was a Jew. 
And the first commandment, thou shalt not have no other gods before me. When you bow to something, you're bowing down to a God. You're bowing down to something besides God, almighty creator of all things. And so Mordecai did not bow down. You know, life is, is unfair at times. Yeah, Mordecai did not bow down, but, but still, he did not get honored. But this guy did. Life is just not fair at times. And, and even on the, hap- on the happily ever afters, unfairness steps in. You see, you're not going to like it how some others receive special recognition instead of you. You may have remember sometimes in your life when someone got that promotion or got that position on the, on the sports team or whatever, and you did not. But here's, here's a, here's a uh, statement I want, you to, I want you to be aware of. This statement right here. But when life is unfair, stay true to your convictions. When life is unfair, stay true to your convictions. That's what Mordecai did. Even in his unfairness, what did he do? He stayed true to his conviction. His conviction that there's only one God that I am going to bow down. So this right here is a lesson that we can learn ourselves. So a few people noticed this deliberate action by Mordecai of not bowing down, and they told Haman all about it. So look how Haman responded in verse five through six. It says this, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people, the Jews, were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. You go, this is a big deal. This is on the level of Hitler. And Haman was not only mad and enraged at Mordecai, he wanted to just kill everybody. So what can we learn from this? Here's here's another statement I want you to get down. Never forget, there will always be someone who resents your devotion to the Lord. Never forget, there will always be someone who resents your devotion to God. The Lord. It won't be everybody. There'll be people who support your devotion to God. But there's going to be people in your life who's going to resent that. Students, when you're in school, when you're in school and, and you don't do certain things, when, when, they're, when you're at the lunch table and they're, they're, they're throwing out all kinds of profanity and you get up and leave and say, as a sign of saying, you know, I don't need any of that, they are going to scorn you for that they will most likely put you down for that. They're going to resent your devotion to the Lord, but stay strong, just like Mordecai. Now, the plot is getting very interesting. Haman wants revenge or vengeance of Mordecai for not bowing down to him by having all the Jews killed. And remember, there's, there's, there's one really, really important Jew in this story. Now, there's lots of Jews, and they're all important, but there's one in particular in this story who's going to be really, really important to as the story goes on, and that is Esther. 
Because what Haman doesn't realize, because she kept it a secret, Haman doesn't know that the queen is a Jew. So he, his plan is to annihilate all the Jews, but he doesn't realize that the queen is one of them. And so what we get from that is this. When, when an evil plan gets underway, there's always unknown areas of wickedness no one thinks about ahead of time. When we do evil things, when we do evil actions, when we do sinful actions, we don't know how reaching the implications are. I mean, one that we can all think of right now, drunk driving. You're drinking, you get into a car, you kill yourself or the people in your car or anybody else in other vehicles, that one act has far-reaching implications. And that's how sin is. Sin stretches out its hands, its fingers, to far-reaching areas. And then it's going to come back and have even more implications on you. Trust me, there are people who are living their life right now incarcerated because of one bad sinful act that had major implications. And they may be locked up in a cell, but let me tell you what, they're locked up in their shame and their guilt because of their actions. So here's a power statement. When, I want you to remember this. When you make a bad choice, the implications reach out further than you know. When you make a bad choice, the implications reach out further than you know. Students, you may not know this too well. You may not experience this yet as much because you're not an adult. But just know this, choices you make, they're gonna have far-reaching implications that you don't even know. And that's what Haman was at. Haman wanted to kill the Jews. And so he sold the idea to the king. King didn't know his own wife was a Jew. King liked it. Hey, I like this plan. Let's do it. So they did so Haman sort of drew straws, or you could even say rolled dice, to find out which, which month. He even made a game out of it. Which month are we going to kill all these people, all these, these families, these young children? When are we going to kill all this whole group of people? So they drew straws, and, and it come to be the, the 12th month. Well, this story took place in the first month. So imagine this. For 11 months, and, and then they, they sent messengers across the entire empire, the largest empire the world has known at that time, and they sent out to everywhere that all the Jews living in this entire empire are going to be killed on this date. And it was 11 months from that day. Imagine, put yourself in their shoes. Imagine if you knew your family was going to be killed on that day particular day and there's very little you can do about it because the empire of persia stretched thousands and thousands of miles you can't get in the plane and fly to some remote island you know they're going to find you wherever you go and so imagine this 11 months of waiting for this wickedness to come to pass. So how can anybody stop this? How can one person make an impact? How can one 
sort of person, what, one action, one vote count, as if they had a vote. You know, it's interesting, I did a little bit of research. There are instances in history where one vote, one person made a difference. Here, here's just a few examples. Uh, number one, in 1649, one vote, one person caused Charles I of England to be executed. One. <laughs> I mean, you can imagine, like, there, there's one vote, and it's like, these numbers and these numbers, and one vote comes in, it's like, well, I guess I'm going to be executed. That's crazy. Or uh, how about this? In 1776, one vote, one person gave America the English language instead of German. One person. One vote is the reason why, one person is the reason why you're speaking uh, English and not German. That's crazy. How about this? In 1845, one vote brought Texas into the Union. <laughs> of course, they're trying to get out, you know, but whatever. But one vote brought Texas into the Union. In 1923, one vote gave Adolf Hitler control of the Nazi party. You think that vote was powerful? Yes, powerful. There is power in one vote, in one action of just one person. One person can make a difference. One person can, can save uh, some lives. One person can affect a life. You know, a few weeks ago, I was uh, sitting in a Waffle House in Cartersville in the morning and uh, having breakfast with um, another gentleman in our church. And we were sitting there, and, and I was sitting, I like to sit at a place where I can see the door. I mean, some of you guys may be the same way. As if I can do anything about anything, you know, in case something like goes down. But, but I like to see the door. And so I'm sitting here, and, you know, Waffle House has just a few places to sit. So we're sitting at a, a, in a, a booth, and there's one booth behind us that's, that's open. And then there's the, the restroom. So we're sitting in this booth, and in walks uh, this gentleman you could tell he, he was homeless, down on his luck, wasn't, you know, probably haven't eaten, hasn't eaten in a while. He, he struggles over there to, to the booth behind me. So he's sitting, and I kind of was able to look peripherally at where he's at, and he's at that bench staring at the back of my head. And I go, you know, I think I'm supposed to do something. So I get up and I go to the restroom and wash my hands and I come back and, and I say, sir, I think I'm supposed to buy you breakfast. And he looked at me in his, in his homeless eyes and he said, well, sir, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. I said, you order what you want and I'll make sure the waitress gives your ticket to me. And I sat down. Now, that's, what you would see if you were in the restaurant. You would see me do that. But I'm going to be honest with you. Can I, can I, I'm just going to be honest with you. In my mind, that's not how it went down. I'm going to get you, I'm going to put you into my head. Okay? So here's what happened. <laughs> so I'm sitting there and I see, you know, this thug walk in. And he's like, he could be carrying something. He's like walking a certain way. And I'm like, okay, this guy's gonna shoot somebody. And he walks in and he walks behind me and he sits down and he's staring and he's laser in the back of my head. And I'm sitting here thinking, I'm gonna be the first one shot. 
what do I do about this? Do I just make up an excuse and go? I mean, I was like, this is what I was thinking. Like, this guy can offload and just shoot a bunch of people. He's got a bag with him and everything. And I'm like, what do I do with this guy? I know what I'll do. I'll buy him breakfast. Because if I buy him breakfast, he won't shoot me. You know? So I go and buy him breakfast. And I say, hey, sir, let me buy you breakfast. He's like, thank you. And, and I'm like, okay, you good? And he's like, yeah, I'm good. And I sit down. And I'm like, okay, I may have saved everybody's life here in this Waffle House. The gentleman I was with, he says, man, that was really nice. And I'm thinking, Yeah. I guess that was nice. But I was thinking a totally different thing. I'm just being honest. Now, obviously, I've, I've paid for meals of people who, but that's just kind of how I was thinking that day. And to make matters worse, when, when the gentleman left, he came, to me, he came to me and said, God bless you, sir. And I was like, God bless you. <laughs> then he left and didn't, no lie, as soon as he left, an, an elderly lady walked over to me and she said, and in the most southern accent, she said, I saw what you did. <laughs> I saw what you did. You had that man, that homeless man, and you fed him, and you shared Jesus with him. And I'm just going, oh, if you only knew. <laughs> but <laughs> that's just how I think sometimes. I do Feed people who actually need it. But in that particular moment, I was like, man, I'm just going to save everybody, you know, here in Waffle House. And so one person can make a difference. One person can make a difference. Whether you're feeding him with the hands of Jesus or if you're trying to protect people and God comes to you and, and, and like, huh, you know, puts guilt trip on you. But whatever it is, you are affecting lots of people and one person can make a difference. When Mordecai heard of the plot, he humbled himself, fasted, and prayed when he heard of what was going on with Haman's plan. He cried out in the middle of the city, put ashes on him, and when Esther heard of what was going on with Mordecai, because she, really, she couldn't really have access to the people. She couldn't just walk outside and start visiting with people. She had to talk through some of her assistants. And so she sent an assistant to ask how he how she could help. Mordecai sent a message to Esther to beg the king for mercy. See, Esther, here, here's what's happening. You need to beg the king for mercy. Here's her response in, um, in verse 11. In verse 11 of chapter four. It says this. All the king's officials... And the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they may be put to death unless the king extends the golden scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. So Esther's response is, look, I would love to help, but I may be killed. If I'm not summoned by the king, he could take my life. And we already know how he's handled other people. I mean, how he handled this, his former queen. And we already know he's, he's a little psycho. And we already know that he has agreed to this, to killing all these Jews. What, what am I supposed to do? 
So Esther decided that she could do one thing. One thing she could not do was to stand before the king unannounced. But one thing she could do was possibly put herself at risk. Uh, Mordecai's response in verse 12 through 14 It says this, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. That's a statement of faith right there. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. What an amazing statement. You were placed by God for such a time as this. That is a turning point speech. That is a turning point message, a statement. Statements like from Patrick Henry, who said, give me liberty or give me death. Or Nathan Hale's statement where it says, I only regret that I have but one life to give for my country. Or Ronald Reagan's statement, tear down this wall. And even in the fictitious or sort of real life story of the movie and Coach Boone when he says, let's make them remember the night they played the Titans. In the movie, Remember the Titans. These are all turning point speeches. Mordecai is telling Esther, don't be silent. This is your time. Maybe God is telling you right here, right now. I know you may seem trapped. You don't know what to do. But this is your time. You were here for such a time as this. God, I believe, is telling Lake Point Church this. You are here for such a time as this to bring people hope. So here's a statement I want you to remember. In the, in the middle of your confusion and fear, know that you are there for such a time as this. In the middle of your confusion and fear, know that you're there for such a time as this. There is a reason why you are there. So in verse 15, then Esther, here's how she responds. I love this, this is powerful. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather all the Jews who are in Susa, which is the capital of Persia, and fast from me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my tenants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, then I perish. If I perish, then I perish. Esther was left standing alone, but she had people praying and fasting for her, but she was the only one to face the fire. In this statement, she, she was changed from fear to faith. If I perish, then I perish. You know what finally clicked with, with, uh, with Esther? Here's what finally clicked in Esther's mind. She finally understood why God placed her at this place in time. There wasn't a coincidence that she, as a Jewish woman, was queen at this time whenever there is 
a plan to annihilate the entire Jewish nation. It was a coincidence. She finally understood why God placed her there. She finally understood that she was more than what others labeled her. You know, the king, the king, to, her, to, to the king, she's just a number in the beauty pageant. To the king, she could even just maybe just be someone just to fulfill his desires. You know, to other people, she's just an orphan girl. She would never really amount to much. You know, it's amazing that she wasn't even married yet, possibly because man, you know, maybe other men were kind of late to this, to this married party with, with Esther because she was an orphan. She didn't have a mother and a father. So she had all these labels. She finally understood that she was more than what others labeled her to be. She was more than what others labeled her to be. Here's my question for you. What about you? Do you believe you're meant for more than what others have labeled you to be? Do you, do you believe you are meant for more than what others have labeled you to be? Do you, do you believe that God can use you to do amazing things? Do you believe that God can use you to do amazing things for his kingdom and his purpose? If so, then it's time for you to say, if I perish, I perish. Let me give you some examples. If you, if you know that you're supposed to stand for truth, even in the midst of being made fun of in the, in, in the student classroom or in the cafeteria or being reprimanded at work or maybe even been overlooked for a promotion because of what you believe. You can say things rather than if I perish, I perish. If my reputation, if, 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 if what people think about me perishes, then it perishes. If my job perishes, then it perishes. If my position perishes, then it perishes. If, if my involvement in this group of friends perishes, then it perishes. But I will stand for what is right. And I will, I will go against evil. God has given you the opportunity to do this, especially in this world. Esther stood alone. And we're gonna get to this next week where she approaches the king. But Esther will stand alone, ready to lay down her life. You know, it reminds me of someone else who stood alone, ready to lay down his life. That was Jesus. He was ready to lay down his life, to face evil, to not cower down. He had boldness just like Esther. He had guts just like Esther. Our Savior faced the evil and faced death alone on a cross. Let me ask you this. If you're sitting here today, you're like, you know, Frank, I need this Savior. I need Jesus to be in my life. I need more 
I need more of you, God. I need more of you. Lord, I need you to set me on fire. I need you to do things in my life that I know I can do, but I need you in my life. I need you to set me on fire for you. I was meant to do more than what I'm doing now. I was made to do more than this. If you are ready to say, God, whatever it takes, whatever that looks like, whatever area of my life needs to perish, whatever area of my life just needs to go away and burn for me to give up to make that sacrifice, I'm ready for you. Students, if you're ready to to start this school year off, ready to just say, Lord, whatever you want, I give it to you. Wherever you lead me, I will go. I will follow. Men, are you ready to lead your families? Ladies, are you ready to, to take your marriage to the next level? Support, respect your husband. Husband, respect your wife, love her. Let me ask you a question. Does your courage match your conviction? Does your courage match your conviction. Lord, give me the courage. Give me the conviction to stand. I know I can do more. I know my marriage can be better. I know my my finances can be better. I know that my witness to you can be better. I know I can do greater things. That's what we want to do today. And so just a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand or say a prayer. And this altar is open. And if you want to come down here and you say, Lord, I, I just give it to you. I just, Lord, I want to, whatever you want from me, I give it to you. I give it all. I want my life to have meaning and purpose. And I need you in my life. And if you've already accepted Christ and say, Lord, I need you to fill me with all that you are. I need you to set me on fire. I know you, Lord Jesus, but I'm just kind of, kind of lukewarm living this life. I need you to set me on fire. I want to be hot for you, Father. If you want that, the altar's open. The altar's open.